So Caesar Augustus declared that his adopted father Julius had become a god, which meant that he, Augustus Octavian Caesar, had officially become the son of God. And news quickly spread around the Roman world. Good news, we have an emperor. The son of God is the king of all the world. And when Augustus died, he too was divinized and his successor Tiberius took on the same title. So you had Julius and you had Augustus and you had Tiberius, all of them gods and sons of gods. And these gods had turned their eyes upon the Middle East because they needed the Middle East for the same reasons we do. We need it for raw materials, for oil. They needed it for, at that time, for grain. And so as Jesus rides into Roman-occupied Jerusalem that day, he is riding into Rome's long story. And then there is also Israel. Israel, from as far back as they could remember, believed that their story was going somewhere, that it had a destination. God had used Moses to lead Israel out of, out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, across the Red Sea to the promised land. And they believed that God would do this again. The tyrants could do their worst, but God would deliver them. Understand the Exodus, and you understand a great deal about Israel, about Judaism, and you understand a great deal about Jesus as well, because Jesus chooses the Passover, the National Exodus Festival. That's what the Passover is. He chooses the National Exodus Festival in order to make his crucial move. And so, as Jesus rides in to Jerusalem that day, Roman-occupied Jerusalem, he is also riding into Israel's long story. Every year we celebrate Palm Sunday and we uh, remember the crowds with their waving the palm branches and their celebrations and cheering and, and we recall how just a week later the crowds are crying, crucify him, crucify him, as they turn against Jesus. And in typical modern Western fashion, we explain this by saying, oh, well, you see, they all thought that Jesus was a political leader, but in actual fact, this, what they didn't understand is this was a religious event. But I hope after everything we've said about Jewish and Roman gods and everything we've said about Jewish and Roman politics, I hope it's obvious that that kind of division would have made absolutely no sense. It would have been completely meaningless to everyone involved back then. Because you see, the religious and the political agendas were intertwined. Rome declares her God king, Israel announces her God as king. So that when Jesus rides into Jerusalem that day, what we're witnessing are the political ambitions and religious ambitions of Rome and the political ambitions and religious ambitions of Jerusalem being brought to a sharp point. The long story of Israel is finally confronting the long story of Rome. So that the usual explanation that the reason why these cheering crowds turn against Jesus is uh, not as easily resolved by saying, oh, well, Jesus was uh, religious and they thought he was political, so they're all disappointed. No, 
The reason why they turn against him is because Jesus showed them in the usual prophetic tradition, this is what the prophets always did, he showed them that their political agenda was not backed by God, that they couldn't just take their theological beliefs and use them to support their political beliefs. In fact, their political agenda meant that they were working against their own God. And this is something that Jesus shows them over and over again from the time he enters into Jerusalem till the time that he is crucified. It's the same message. He tells the story of the prodigal son. He tells the story of the vineyard, the parable of the vineyard. He answers questions about paying taxes to Caesar. He curses the fig tree. He turns over the tables of the money changers in the temple. And each one of these events and sayings and parables sends the same message. Let me quickly review some of those for you. Turning over the tables in the temple is perhaps the most obvious symbolic act of God's judgment on Israel's political leadership and political agenda. The Sadducees, the wealthy, influential Sadducees, ran the temple. And by overturning the tables and driving everyone out, Jesus is saying, look, God's judgment is upon you. He's declaring their political leadership is illegitimate. In the parable of the prodigal son, both sons are Israel. And the younger son asks for his early inheritance, as you remember, and he goes off and spends it on prostitutes and wild living. But when he finally comes to his senses and returns home, the father slaughters the fattened calf and they celebrate his return. But do you remember in that parable, the elder son, he refuses to enter the house because he resents the prodigal son returning home and being celebrated in this way. And in the chilling close of the story, we discover the elder son, only a few steps outside his father's house, is as far away as his brother ever was. This is surely a rebuke to the self-righteous Pharisees and their own political agenda. And then they try to trap Jesus with the question about paying taxes to Caesar. This is a, a political trap. If Jesus, says, if Jesus says, don't pay taxes, he's an enemy of Rome. But if he says, pay the taxes, he's a traitor to Israel. But Jesus asks the Pharisees and teachers of the law there, he says, show me a dinar, a Roman coin, which actually had the blasphemous inscription, Caesar, son of God, written around it. Just to be caught with one of these, with that blasphemous inscription, was to be both deeply, as a Jew, to be both deeply politically and religiously compromised. But one of the teachers of the law produces the coin from his own pocket, and by doing so demonstrates how deeply compromised Israel's political leaders are. And Jesus tells the story of the vineyard. The vineyard is Israel and the tenants are Israel's leaders and God sends his servants to Israel. The servants are God's prophets who come again and again to tell Israel, God does not back your national agenda. God won't be co-opted for your political ambitions. And so they kill them. I could go on, but hopefully this is enough for you to get a sense of how Jesus not only fails to rubber stamp their politics with God's approval, but with every parable and every saying and every action upon entering Jerusalem, 
he turns their God against them, or, or rather, he, he shows them they have turned against their God. Is that really enough? Is that really enough to get Jesus killed? Well, if you're not feeling any of the political charge there, if you're not feeling the offence and you don't sense the controversy and the storm that is sort of swirling around Jesus as he says and does these things, then it's probably because we're too far removed from the events themselves. Look, it's a little bit like this. For us, the Vikings are just people who wear funny hats and have too much facial hair. But they're comical characters. But in reality, they were coming in and they were raping and killing, killing and pillaging. Now, I don't know how much time has to pass in order for events like these to be drained of their political charge, but it happens. Let me give an example from our own political context. Look, if I say Donald Trump does not have God's backing, most people around here will just nod in agreement, right? Hey, we're in, we're in New York. But we still think a little smugly to ourselves, but surely... God smiles more benevolently on my own political leanings. But sometimes we catch a glimpse of how that might not be the case at all. A couple of months ago, I was talking to the manager of one of the coffee shops I work from here in New York, and she had just got back from Lebanon visiting her family there. As you know, Lebanon has been flooded just flooded with refugees over the last few years. Her friends and family are thoughtful, well-educated people. And they were saying to her, things are so much better for them with Donald Trump as president. And they said, in America, you might suffer a little bit under Trump, but we suffer a whole lot less because they had seen the suffering of Middle Eastern people under the foreign policy of Obama and Bush. So please keep isolationist Trump there a while longer for all our sakes. The Arab world can't take any more American meddling. And the only reason why we may not think about people in Lebanon and the devastation of our regime change wars in the Middle East and factor that into our calculations is because in some sense, many of us are more profoundly committed to America first than Donald Trump will ever be. Now, if you find this offensive, if you feel any sort of political charge in what I've just said, then let me tell you, you are one step closer to understanding the events that took place, that were triggered by Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem that first Palm Sunday. Let me summarize where we've been. In week one, we said Jewish apocalypse anticipated that the power of God would confront the power of this world. And the claim of the New Testament is that this confrontation has happened in Jesus Christ on the cross. In week two, we considered what it means to claim that here in this degrading death, this is where God is. If this is where we find God, 
then humanity itself must be re-evaluated. We, we can no longer evaluate humans by the values of power and pride and wealth. Blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor, blessed are the humble. And this week we've been saying that if the power of God confronts the power of the world on the cross, and if Jesus on the cross, from the cross, re-evaluates all our values from generation to generation, then one of the things we must do is allow Jesus to reevaluate our own political agendas and political loyalties. If you're not open to that, well then we might find ourselves fighting God. Let me be clear, my intent in viewing the triumphal entry through the lenses of power, religion and politics is not meant at all to detract from or diminish the central message, Easter message of forgiveness and new life. To the contrary, by delving into the boots on the ground context, my hope is that for all of us, the meaning and challenge of these epic moments in time would be enhanced. It's to put the spotlight on our own journeys to Jerusalem. It's becoming aware of the dehumanizing actions and agendas and plays for power that carry each of us along and which expose our own need for forgiveness and the need for wrongs to be righted. The premise is that we all follow stories that can move off track. And the promise is that as we honestly reflect and have our motives and agendas challenged by Christ's self-giving love, both personally and collectively, we will more closely travel the path of following him who rides for us and with us into an infinitely better story. Amen.